title this message, A Sober Warning to the Nations. A Sober Warning to the Nations. We have four points, one slide for each of those points. So you can go ahead and go to point number one. The nation's rebellion. The nation's rebellion. Verses one through three. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. One um, professor of mine from doctoral studies in his commentary on this text, he observes that the word why there, why do the nations rage, has uh, the structure and the design that that word why would be asked again of each of those statements or questions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves together? Why do the rulers take counsel together? All of these things against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the word why is only stated once, but that word why is designed to apply to all four of these questions. And these four questions, the nations raging, the people plotting a vain thing, the kings setting themselves together, and the rulers taking counsel together, all of this is against the Lord and against his anointed, And here's what they're saying. They're saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So that's the structure in the Hebrew, according to Dr. Davis. If you want a good resource on this, you can look up Dale Ralph Davis. And his commentaries are excellent on anything that he is writing on. But uh, in the Psalms are where he is, um, where I'm getting this from. So I've divided this first point, the nation's rebellion, into two subpoints. We don't have slides for it, so Mark, don't worry. Uh, first subpoint is number one: a world at war. A world at war. Verses one and two a. At first reading, this text is describing a scene that could be at any time in history. The nations are raging. Well, what nations? Well, nations. The people are plotting vain things. Did you know that people plot things? There are not just conspiracy theories, but there are conspiracies. People have been plotting evil plots for as long as they've had brains. People are plotting vain things. Kings of the earth are setting themselves. They're making plans, and rulers are taking counsel together. So they're not just making individual plans, but they're getting together with other rulers to make these evil plots. But at first reading, this text is describing a scene that could be at any time in history. It is not exclusive to any one time in history, but applies to every age and every nation. It's describing a world in rebellion against God, or nations in rebellion against God. From the very earliest time in human history, which we read about in the book of Genesis, we see nations at war. We see nations in constant tumult, constant conflict. From the very beginning of time to the Roman occupation of Israel 2,000 years ago to the rise of Islam and its invasion of the Holy Land beginning around 1,400 years ago to the Mongolian invasion of Europe about 800 years ago and then the Crusades of Europe over a 500-year period from the 11th to the 16th century, nations have been at war. 
This trend of nations at war continue in an unbroken stream of war through the 17th century, through two world wars in the 20th century, and into the present era, where news headlines are saturated with wars and rumors of war. The history of the world is a history of the world at war. This is not a new thing. And if I forgot your favorite war, I'm very sorry. I apologize. There's lots more wars that could be highlighted. The nations are most certainly raging. And the kings of the earth are taking counsel together. So we have, first sub-point, a world at war. Secondly, verses 2b through 3, a world at war against God. It's not just war against each other, though it is against each other. But beyond that, they're also at war with God. So verse 2b through 3, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. As bad as man's war and rebellion against one another is, this rage is ultimately aimed at God himself. Atheists will often allege that religion is the cause of so many wars throughout history. And there is admittedly a great deal of truth to that. That is not a false statement that, yes, people do go to war in the name of religion quite often. Now, as Christians, we should not even feel slightly threatened by acknowledging this point, as we are not beholden to defending religion in some vague sense. We're not committed to defending the broad notion of religion. If someone says, oh, well, in the name of religion, you just say, yeah, yeah, that's happened. We confidently affirm, though, that Christianity does not spread or advance at the edge of a sword. Christianity does not grow as spread or spread through war. That's not the way it works. That's not the nature of our religion. Nevertheless, atheist regimes have been responsible for over 100 million deaths in the last century. So it's not all religion's fault. It's also non-religion. Or if you realize that communism is a religion. Now, if you are having a hard time getting Google results for how many deaths are responsible uh, under atheism, which that Google, re, uh, Google search doesn't really yield much that's actually meaningful, you can search for deaths under communism, and you will find that number 100, 100 million thrown out there. What we observe is that while 100 million have died under communism in 100 years, over the last 50 years, here in the U.S. alone, we have aborted over 60 million babies. So yes, Communism is horrific. It is barbaric. It is brutal. But here in the United States, we're not, we don't, don't exactly have clean hands either. So we have a world at war against God and supposed Christian nations or Christian countries or Christians with a Judeo-Christian background. None, they're, not, they're no better. They do not have a notably better track record. We have the nation's rebellion against God, a world at war against God. Now we see these words, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Um, Yesterday, uh, Jack and I were eating some pizza 
Um, Emery was there too, but she's not here right now. So, um, but anyway, Jack and I were eating pizza uh, down in the area of uh, Planned Parenthood, and um, we're sitting there outside eating our pizza. And this police van pulls up, and these two female cops get out and go in and get pizza as well. And I made some remark about how like, you know it's a good place when the cops go there because you know they drive around a lot and they know all the spots. Um, and then I, my mind started spinning with like, what if there's inmates in the van and they're stopping to get pizza for the inmates? You know, like you've heard the story about the guy who wanted some Burger King. So the cop stopped to feed him to get him some Burger King on his way to jail. Like that's what I'm visualizing happening. And then while we're sitting there, I, I start imagining, well, what if the inmates broke their bonds? What if they, they broke their handcuffs and then they drive away in the police van right now? And I thought this would make a great illustration. And Jack's like, yeah, and you're completely making this up. None of this is happening. It's just the police van. But we read words like break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So imagine that. Like imagine a guy in handcuffs who's breaking them. Imagine somebody who is under restraint and is breaking loose of that because he doesn't want to be controlled by an authority figure. Well, that's, that's the image here in Psalm 2 verse 3. The nations don't want to be under the authority and subjection of God. They want to cast off all restraint. That's the meaning of these words. Let us break break their bonds in pieces. The nations want to cast off all restraint. They want to do their own thing. And so we have first, point one, the nation's rebellion. Point two, a second slide. God the Father's response. God the Father's response. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So we have God the Father's response. How does God respond to this? Well, our text says he laughs. He laughs. The idea of the nations rebelling against God and saying, we're going we're gonna to break loose. We're going to take this police car and drive away. We're going to do whatever we want and you can't stop us is laughable. God is looking at this and is like, you must be joking. You think you can get away with this. There is no appropriate illustration that accurately can fit how absurd this picture is. But a very faulty illustration would be like imagining, imagine, um, so I have a son who is 16 months old in a couple days, and he, um, he's little, you know, he's like 20-something pounds, and I'm more than 20-something pounds, and he, uh, he can run around, but his legs are like this long, and he's not very fast. And, I mean, he's fast, but he's like not actually fast. Um, he's strong, but he's not actually strong. 
Like he's strong for who he is, but he actually doesn't really have strength. And um, one of our favorite activities is around 6 or 7 p.m. after dinner, after bath time and all that, is to um, wrestle on the floor in the living room. And so if I am laying on the floor, he's going to come and try and jump on me. So let's say he does this, and then he's like laughing hysterically while doing this, and I'm like, oh, you got me. Does he actually have me down? No. Am I going to say, oh, you got me? Yeah. Are we all going to laugh about it? Yeah. Now imagine that he thinks he's actually holding me down. The discrepancy between my son's strength, all 22 pounds of him, and my strength, which is more than 22 pounds, is is quite a contrast. The gap between the power of God and the power of the nations, even if they have nuclear capacity, is a much larger gap. So God's response to the nation's rage against him is to laugh at them. What many commentaries do when addressing this text, this verse, uh, verse 4, is to describe in vivid detail uh, or or in, in list form the deaths of a number of prominent world leaders. Men who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And then describing how, like, well, this guy died of some sort of horrible disease in his intestines. Like, yeah, he thought he was something, and then he died when he was 55. He raised his fist to God, but then he died in a war. And it's just like that over and over and over again for, like, 25 names. You can be the most powerful man in the world, but God can stop your heart like that. So God's response to the rage of the nations and their rebellion against him is to laugh at them. Secondly, it's derision. Now, if you don't know what derision is, well, it means to deride. And if you don't know what that is, well, I looked it up. And it says to ridicule or to mock. So context helps you understand that even if you don't even know that word. It's just, well, continuing the the idea. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So he's restating it. He's laughing at them. He's mocking them. He's ridiculing them. So remember Psalm 1 from last week. For those who are new, we're going through Psalms. So um, so the, the unrighteous, the wicked, the ungodly, is the, the most ungodly one is the scorner, the scoffer, the one who looks with disdain upon the righteous and the godly. Well, God actually has a mocking response for them. God is not neutral about evil. He hates it. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. These six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. The idea that God is just neutral about these things is absurd. The Father, God the Father's response to this rebellion is to laugh at them and to mock them. He allows them to go on in the same way that a father wrestling with his one-year-old son allows his son to keep jumping on him, but he knows he could stop it at any moment. For those who say, where is the justice of God in the face of such extreme evil and such extreme wickedness that we observe in the world all around us? Well, trust me, it's there. The justice of God is there. Every day, the ungodly die. Like the death rate right now is 
comparable to the national debt. Like it's just going up and up and up. More and more and more and more and more people are dying every moment. And if they are not in Christ, they are being ushered into judgment. So there is judgment. There is justice. Verse 5 says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. God has wrath against the wicked. And then it says, He will distress them in his deep displeasure. This is a very sober warning. This is why I've titled the message a sober warning to the nations. This is not pleasant. This is not neutral. This is the anger and wrath of God against a wicked world. When I read words like distress them, there's an expression. I hope I use this right. And if you know much more about sheep herding than I do, um, just bear with me as I uh, talk about this. From what I understand, um, there's a term... I believe it's worry, to worry the sheep, and that a sheepdog will worry the sheep, and basically it's like chasing them around. What is happening when that sheepdog is worrying the sheep? Well, if you were in that sheep's brain, that you would probably find that that sheep is getting worried. That sheep is in distress. He is not enjoying this experience. So you look at the world and you say, why are things so bad? Well, perhaps it's because God is pouring out his judgment, even in a temporal way, in the here and now. It's not all spiritual. There is some physical punishment being delivered on the wicked. He is distressing them. You who are into uh, fabric and fashion, you get the jeans and you want to make them distressed. So what do you do? You get like a wire brush and you rub it against it to wear it out a little bit. So God is distressing the nations. There's a point here, which I I guess we'll make it a little bit. I don't have any notes on it, so we'll just kind of go off the cuff here. Uh, The the issue with um, poverty alleviation and humanitarianism as missions, there's an issue there. It's not all bad. But as a Christian, thinking about these issues, you need to think a little bit more carefully than what evangelicalism has typically done. If you are simply solving or attempting to solve human problems without trying to solve the spiritual problems that are at the root of it, you're not actually going to fix things. You're just doing, as Paris Reed had said, putting springs on the wagon until the wagon gets to hell. And the work of the church is not just to put springs on wagons that are headed to hell. So if you're involved in, let's say, I referenced this last week, missions in Haiti. The problem in Haiti is not that they're poor. The problem is demon worship. And so until that is repented of, until that is turned away from, you're going to keep throwing money into a hole where it's just going to keep disappearing. The Lord is distressing these nations because of his deep displeasure. Now, can we pull a one-to-one correlation between every single problem that we see in the world today and a specific sin? No, not necessarily. A number of years ago, um, there was uh, the hurricane that hit New Orleans and... um, A lot of people are saying, look, it's because of the wickedness of New Orleans. 
And then uh, I think CNN got John MacArthur in front of a camera and said, why did this happen? It's like, why are you putting preachers in this position of like, we're supposed to answer why a specific thing happened. And then he, he quoted the passage from, I think, Matthew that says, you know, why did the tower fall that killed a certain number of people? And it's just like, well, we're not really interested in answering that question. But what you need to know is that you need to repent. And that that's the answer when any calamity happens is that, well, don't really worry about that specifically, but just know that you need to repent. Don't get caught up in the details. Just recognize the certainty of death, the shortness of life, the length of eternity, the reality that you need to get right with God. Because God is angry with the wicked every day. God the Father's response is not only this anger, this laughing, this mocking, this pouring out of wrath, this distressing of their, uh, the nations, but he has also set his king on his throne. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There is an immediate context, which we haven't yet commented on. I think I'm going to comment on it later, but we'll talk about it right now. And that is, yes, this text is obviously about Jesus. The text tells us, uh, the the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, tells us this is about Jesus. But there is an immediate context when David wrote it, and that is the king, meaning him, placed in the position of king by God through the prophet Samuel, the Davidic covenant described in 2 Samuel 7. Um, That's happening. So, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion is referring immediately to David being crowned king, set on his holy hill of Zion. Zion is a specific place in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which years later is what we call the Temple Mount. So King David is set on the throne to rule in the face of the nations raging, the nations warring against one another, but ultimately warring against God. And so God establishes King David, but there's something greater, which is Jesus, who is Jesus, and he is the ultimate solution. So God the Father's response is to establish his king. The immediate context being King David, but then the fulfillment being Jesus. Let's move on. Point three, the Lord Jesus Christ's response. This is our Lord's response. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This immediate context for this psalm, we know, it speaks first of King David. But it is confirmed in Acts 4 that David's Psalm 2 is speaking of the greater son of David, the Messianic king, who is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. So that person there, me, whoever me is, is the son. So in this verse, when it says the Lord said to me, the Lord is Yahweh, the Father, God the Father speaking to God the Son, 
saying, today I have begotten you. You are my son. The words, you are my son, are spoken at Jesus' baptism by God the Father. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is described in the end of Matthew 3. It is significant, both in Psalm 2 and in Matthew 3, because his identity as the Son of God, not merely the Son of Joseph and Mary, but that God the Father, the voice from heaven, is saying, you are my Son. His identity as the divine Son of God is affirmed. Now remember, remember our um, summer of heresy. Which, which heresy am I really excited to talk about right now? Do you remember? It starts with an A and ends with Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. I'm glad that y'all were ready to guess that. Apollinarianism is the idea that Jesus had a human body and a divine mind, and so he's basically kind of like Superman. He's just going around doing stuff because, well, he's God. He, he did retain his deity, but what really happened in the incarnation the wonder of this incarnation is not so much that he retained his deity, but that he became truly man and that he has a true human mind and that the human mind and the divine mind are not being commingled like two different colors of jello poured into one bowl and swirled together, but rather they, he retains a full divine mind and a full human mind and that the divine mind is veiled, his divinity is veiled in flesh. So the song, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity. That's what's going on in the incarnation. And so as Jesus is walking around on this earth doing the stuff that he does, and people are like, how'd you know this? Or how'd you know that? Well, the answer is not because he's God. The answer is he knew the things he knew and he did the things he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why he says certain things like, of the day or the hour of the return of the Son. Nobody knows except the Father. The reason he says that is because he, the human Jesus of Nazareth, with his human finite mind, doesn't know. This is also the reason why, if you asked him, how does Beethoven's fifth start? He would stare at you with a blank look on his face because he did not speak English. So you say, how does Beethoven's fifth go? And he's just like, he doesn't speak English. Secondly, Beethoven isn't born yet and hasn't written Beethoven's fifth yet. So the song that goes, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, you know that song? He doesn't know that. He has a true human mind. Now, his divine mind does know that, but he's not exercising that. So that's the reason why, as it happens a couple times in the Gospels, where he's just like, uh, nobody knows that except God. This is the reason why he gets hungry. He gets hungry because he's truly human. So, the significance, where I'm going with all this, I was like, where are we going? Where we're going here is, it is significant that God the Father says, you are my son, because up to this point, he, so he's learning and growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, because he's true humanity. 
So he has to memorize the Bible the same way you and I have to memorize the Bible if he's going to learn the Bible. He doesn't just already know it because he's God. You know, he has to learn it. And so as he's reading in this book about these messianic prophecies and his parents are telling him, oh, by the way, that's about you. And he's like, oh, wow. That's about me. I'm the heir of the prophecies of the son of David. I'm the messianic king. Oh, boy. So when the voice speaks over him and says, you are my son. That's quite, quite encouraging. So he hears it proclaimed. He's not merely reading about it in scripture, but he hears it proclaimed by God and they all see the dove descending upon him. Remember that in his incarnation, his divinity is veiled and he has a true human mind. He's not a human body with a divine mind. Remember, because that's Apollinarianism, Patrick. But his divine mind retains all of its fullness, but his humanity is subjected to all the limitations of true humanity, including the need to learn things. In addition to hearing the father proclaim, this is my son, at the beginning of his ministry and his baptism, Jesus also hears the father's voice at the end of his ministry in his transfiguration. The transfiguration, remember that Peter, James, and John go up into the mount, and Jesus is transfigured before them, and they're able to see the fullness of his glory. And the voice says, this is my son. So what happens is this voice says, this is my son, both at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And so affirming and encouraging and equipping and preparing and sending him to the cross. That transfiguration is described Matthew 17, which says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking with them when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, I have in my notes here a comment. I said, I wrote, address the begottenness of the Son. So we need to do that. We need to do that right now. 
I wish I had a chalkboard so we could do R.C. Sproul style. The begottenness of the Son. What does it mean when it says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you? Well, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Begotten. You know, it's not really a word we use very much. If you've been reading Old Testament genealogies in an old version of the Bible, you'll see the words begat. So, I don't know, Adam, begat, Cain. This is the idea of fathering. Andy, begat, baby Andrew. What does it mean that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father? We know that Jesus is eternal. He was born in his humanity. When we say that the Father, the, the, God the Father begat the Son, that the Son is begotten of the Father, he's the only begotten Son, does that mean that there was a point in time, like the Mormons say, where Jesus was born? No, no, that's not, that's not what that means. Because not only do we affirm the begottenness of the Son, we affirm the eternal begottenness of the Son. Jesus is eternally begotten. Let me take my keys out of my pocket so I can quit playing with them. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, which means he is of the Father. Of the Father's uh, begotten. Um, He's begotten of the Father, but he's eternally begotten of the Father, which means he is eternally the Son of the Father. He's eternally of the Father. So our understanding of the, the Trinity is not some new development. It is eternal. The Son is eternally the Son. The Father is eternally the Father. And their relationship to each other, a father and son, is an eternal thing. It's always been that way. It's not that they were just three spirits floating around. And then at some point, the father's like, I'm going to give birth to you. No. The father is eternally the father. The son is eternally the son. Spirit is eternally the spirit. And the father and son, their relationship is that of a father and a son, that the son is begotten of the father. The Son is not born at any point because he's eternal, yet he is eternally the Son of the Father. He is of the Father, yet he is of the same essence and substance, the same ontology, the same nature, the same essence, the same uh, qualities and the uh, same essential characteristics as the Father. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He's all-wise, all-powerful entirely self-sufficient with the Father. So when we say the Son is begotten, if you were ever asked, do you believe in the eternal begottenness of the Son? You should tell them, yes, I do. And if they say, well, what do you think about these new translations, translating John 3.16 as his only beloved Son, or his only unique Son, or his one and only Son, you should say, well, I, wish, I would prefer that they would have maintained the word begotten, because begotten is a specific word, which is unique from the word unique. His one and only son, his only unique son. No, he is the begotten son. And there's something here that we lose if we lose that term. So we need to maintain that concept in our mind, that category in our mind, that the son is the begotten son of the father, but he is eternally begotten. So he wasn't born at some point a long, long time ago. So, verse 7. 
I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you're like, wait, it says today I have begotten you, therefore he must have been begotten at some point. Well, Jesus is eternally begotten. This has at least two meanings, the first of which being King David, the second which being the Lord Jesus Christ. It was born at a certain point. We've already referenced the near-far view in prophecy, where there's an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a later fulfillment. And sometimes there's multiple mountains in between the near view and the far view. So this should not present a problem for you. Next, point, uh, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations of your inheritance. The next thing in my notes under the begottenness of the Son is the covenant of redemption. Since we're in the deep end of the pool right now. The covenant of redemption. Some would say, well, the covenant of redemption is not a biblical concept. Where is that in the Bible? That's a philosophical term that theologians have invented in seminary. See, this is why theology is bad and you just need the Bible. Well, the covenant of redemption is in the Bible. It's right here. It's in other places too. But right here is a great spot. Verse 8 says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations. Who's speaking? Well, the Father's speaking. He's speaking to the Son. A covenant of, the covenant of redemption is the idea of the, the Trinity getting together and being like, hey, we're going to save some of these people. Not all of them. We have our own secret purposes. We have the sovereign will of ourselves. And so we're going to save some of these people. Which ones is it going to be? Well, ask me and I'll make them your inheritance. And so the son says, okay, well, I want certain ones. And so the covenant of redemption is established. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Uh, Something that's noteworthy to observe is the range of time that's discussed and that's observed. Both uh, in the previous verse, I will... um, declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, uh, where we see in Jesus in his life and ministry, the range from the beginning of his ministry clear to the end of his ministry. But we also observe a, a time frame of creation or prior to creation, the covenant of redemption that takes place before the world was formed, all the way to the end of human history with this judgment that God will pour out the fulfillment of this promise. Uh, Moving on, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This rod of iron is mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. That Jesus will rule the nations with the rod of iron. That's where we get from the prior to the book of Genesis to the ending of the story in the book of Revelation. We see this time frame here. The covenant of redemption to the judgment of the nations with the rod of iron. This is most certainly speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will judge the world. It is a faulty view to think that um, in the Old Testament, God the Father is the mean God and that Jesus, God the Son, is the nice one. And so if you're, you you know, the Father's the one who punishes and the Son's the one who saves. Well, the Son is the one who saves, but the Son is also the one who judges. He's also the one who casts into hell. He's the standard by which the whole world is judged. 
So you, you need to be reconciled to Jesus. You need to get right with Jesus before Jesus casts you into hell. So let's move on. Point four, application. Be reconciled to the Son. Be reconciled to the Son. Verse 10 says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Or in ESV it says, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So verse 10 addresses kings and judges, rulers of all kinds. Therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Right now, we're in 2024 now, there's a whole political situation developing, and as it typically happens. Right now, we've got the Iowa caucuses developing. Politicians are desperate to gain the favor of the voters. They want to be voted in. They want to win. What would happen if a politician was desperate to gain the favor of God? What would that be like? I think we know. They wouldn't win. Well, why is that? That's because the nation's rage. The most supposed Christian nations in world history have used a merged joint power of church and state to oppress, i.e. murder, Bible-believing Christians in ways that would make your stomach churn. If you've ever wondered, oh, why is Andy aggressively against Christian nationalism? Well, besides the fact that it's a federal operation by a certain Uh, people who work for three-letter agencies in order to radicalize the conservative half of the country to put them all on terrorist watch lists and do a January 6, 2.0. Besides that, we also have church history. And church history tells us that such operations are a disaster every time. Same with communism. It's a disaster every time. Utopia, heaven on earth, doesn't happen before Jesus arrives. We don't usher in his coming by us Christianizing the world. It doesn't happen. He comes back. He establishes justice. He rules the nations perfectly with a rod of iron. And he isn't the one killing the Christians. But when you merge church and state together, what happens? The church kills Christians. So that's why it's a fool's errand to line up with Christian nationalism and say, oh, we'll do it different this time. No, you won't. Have you heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Have you heard of John Rogers and William Tyndale? Have you heard of the other Bible translators who were murdered by the state church for the crime of translating the Bible into the common language? That was done in the name of Roman Catholicism. Most of the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs is horrific descriptions of crimes, of murders committed by the Roman Catholic Church, calling themselves Christian, against other Christians. Every one of them, they're martyrs, so they're Christians. Most of them are being killed by 
people who call themselves Christians who just have a little bit more government control than they do or way more government control than they do. Nevertheless, kings are not off the hook by saying, oh, well, you know, since we don't want to have a merged church and state, therefore I'm just going to continue my rebellion against God. No, that's a wrong conclusion. You need to be reconciled to God, but you also need to recognize that when you are reconciled to God, your nation's not going to automatically convert. Those people also must be reconciled to God, and they're probably going to turn against you once you're reconciled to God, once you repent. Unless they repent, then they're just going to dismiss you and get a, a different ruler who is going to continue leading them into the wickedness that they desire. This is why there is no perfect system. There is no perfect way to do politics in a Christian way. Nevertheless, kings and rulers are not off the hook, and they are commanded to bow before the Lord. It says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This is all language of repentance, being reconciled to the son, turning from raising your fist at him, to looking to him as your salvation. It's a 180. It's a a radical change in mind. It's recognizing his authority. I think there's two views on this kiss the sun thing. Whether it is a king sitting on the throne, bringing in the conquered subjects who are then going to kiss his feet, or Father, prodigal son, son comes running in, he kisses him and receives him. Either way, the language is you need to be reconciled to the son. Why? Well, because his wrath currently abides on you. So if you don't get reconciled to the son before that happens and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little, like that's not not a good situation and you don't want to experience that. But it concludes with this hope. It says, blessed are those. Last week we talked about blessed and what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy. If you want to be happy, you're going to be happy in Jesus. And this is offered right here in verse 12. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Blessed are those who find their refuge in Jesus. The angry son who is sitting on the throne, who is angry with the nations, who are angry with him, he's pouring out his wrath on them. He, the son who rules the nations, He will rule them one day with a rod of iron. He is currently ruling them in a um, mediated way through his providence, with which he governs all things. But there is a day coming when he will rule the nations, not with a mediator, but he will rule them immediately himself, seated on the throne, ruling. If you wait to get reconciled until that happens, it's too late. And so you need to put your trust in him, find your refuge in him before you find your judgment from him. The way this works is that he is the one who made the atonement for the sins of these nations. In his life and ministry, he was incarnate. He came to this earth. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross at the hands of the Romans. The Romans rage against him. But like all of the rage of the nations, he uses the rage of the nations to accomplish his purpose. In that particular instance, it is his purpose of going to the cross. 
to die at the hands of wicked men, but to die as a substitute under the wrath of God. And then to rise on the third day, and then to ascend to heaven 40 days later, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling the nations. He has been seated on the throne, the throne of his father David. He was given it in Acts 2. So he has begun his reign already, but it is not fulfilled yet. This, this ain't it. There's much, much, much more that actually looks like the prophecies of the Bible where the nations are going to be at actual peace that, that will come. And so you need to find your refuge in the sun before you experience the wrath of the sun. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, consider this your warning. Consider this the call to come to Christ and to be reconciled to the Son before you find yourself standing before him as his enemy. The way you do that is to turn to him by faith, to believe that he is the Savior of sinners and that he would receive you if you would come to him. He has his arms open, and this is not a day of judgment today. This is a day of reconciliation. It is a day of redemption and salvation. And so you come to Christ and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So this is a sober warning to the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you humbly acknowledging the authority of your son, the authority that has been given to him and that will be fully realized at a day in the future. We thank you that so many in this room have been reconciled to the son already, yet we are concerned for those who are not yet reconciled to the son. We pray for their salvation. We pray for their awakening, the quickening of their hearts, that their hearts would come alive to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him as their hope and their salvation. Lord, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.